Great. So we're uh, moving now. Alice is going to come and speak to us again uh, in this Genesis series. And if, you've, if you'd like to hear previous ones again or for the first time, um, we have them in a few locations. That we've got a YouTube um, channel where all of these video recordings go, as well as on our Facebook page. And then also on, our Hope, on the Hope website, uh, there's a section there called Talks. And that's got all of our talks going back years, actually, uh, as podcasts that you can download or listen to from there. And also on there, we, we, um, we save the PowerPoint. So a kind of an extended version. Think Lord of the Rings, the six hour set, you know, six hour version rather than the three hour compact one, which we're going to see, uh, on the PowerPoint just here. So there's the full PowerPoint with references to, um, uh, the things that Alice is quoting and so on. So Lord, as Alice comes and speaks to us now, um, we pray, Holy Spirit, that you, you feed us and that you inspire us. We pray that you uh, recognize um, that you have a purpose, you have a destiny, a design for each one of us, and we're part of this incredible world and history that you have put together. And um, it's uh, so encouraging to know, uh, you know that you hold these things together and that you see these things. And we pray that as Alice speaks, we invite you and we welcome you and we ask you, Lord, to, um, to renew our minds according to your way of seeing things, yeah. to soften our hearts, um, to, to, to receive what... The, the truths, uh, of, uh, the eternal truths of Scripture and, and of Your Word, mm. Lord, please feed us, please make us strong, because mm. we want to bless everyone around us with the love of Jesus, and we and we need Your Your life and Your Word in us to do that well. Mm. Amen. Amen. Thank you. Yeah, it's been really great to be able to do these three talks. Um, we did Genesis one a couple of weeks ago. Genesis 2 and 3 last week, and this week, Genesis 4 to 11, which covers what's been called the primeval history, some of the most complex and challenging passages for us as modern readers in the Bible, and yet, as Chris mentioned earlier, actually the foundational principles upon which the, if you like, the house of our biblical worldview is built. So really important that we get to grips with these, we ask questions, and we really welcome any questions from today or the last two weeks For next week, we're going to have a question and response. As I say, we can't necessarily answer questions because these are complex and deep. And if they would be easily answerable, then they probably would have already been answered. But we would love to respond to them because we think actually there's a lot more response to these questions than perhaps we've had, we've realised. So Genesis 4 to 11, we're going to look at today. If you look at the first week, Genesis 1, humans are significant. That's the, the, that's the takeaway. Genesis 1, humans are significant. Last week, Genesis 2 and 3, humans are free. We're free to be significant and rule according to God's wisdom, and we are totally free not to do that. We're free to rule in our own wisdom, which the Bible says leads to death and destruction and sabotage, trauma and tragedy, whereas ruling in God's wisdom leads to life, human flourishing and abundance. And then this, if you like, completion of the primeval narrative, Genesis 4 to 11, really says we're free, but we're actually accountable. There's an accountability, every thought, word, action that every human does. There is accountability. We give an account before Yahweh, Elohim. People literally don't get away with murder. So we're going to look at life east of Eden. We had our Eden narratives And now we're going to look at the exile life east of Eden. Quick recap, though, for those I love a bit of repetition. As you can tell, the Bible loves repetition because we kind of need stuff repeated. So quick recap of what we're doing when we're coming to the Bible. It's ancient Mediterranean literature. I actually now sometimes, as as much as I can, if I can access our iPad and someone else isn't accessing it in the house, I, I love reading Genesis in Bible Hub Interlinear. It reads from right to left. It reads the English, then the Hebrew text, which you can see a bit of there, and then the English-like word sounds of the Hebrew text. So I can't read Hebrew, but I can start to connect sounds. And just by reading from right to left, I begin to change and immerse myself in another person's, in the author's worldview. Just that, that helps me make the leap. This wasn't written by English people to English people in the 21st century. So Tim Mackey, we need to be good listeners 
we need to listen to the biblical authors on their own terms. So now when I go, I try and go to listen to how the, the, the literary features, the designs, the puns, the echoes, the allusions, what's going on within the, the sounds and the words that the biblical authors use, because in there I get the meaning that they're trying to communicate. So I love this phrase. I've actually read it in quite a few books and heard different scholars say it. Michael Heiser, Tim Mackey and John Walton say this. So I don't know where it comes from. But the Hebrew Bible was not written to us, but has been given for us. And I just love that. It wasn't written to us. It was actually we're actually reading to coin a phrase for how people talk about reading Paul's letters in the New Testament. But I think this is helpful for the whole Bible, particularly the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament. We're reading someone else's mail. We're reading a communication between ancient Israelite prophets, the ancient Israelite people. And this communication evolves. I talked about the complex process of production, but it finally comes into completion around a crisis period in their history the Babylonian exile. And it's really important that we know we're doing that when we go to read the Bible. So we'll stick, stick with that slide. But what I found really helpful from uh, Temper Longman and John Walton's The Lost World of the Flood, which I've used a lot for this, this talk, I found that immensely helpful, as well as all the other authors. You can get the full bibliography in the first talk from Genesis 1 on the PowerPoint slides accompanying the podcast, is... Two forms of communication, which I think is absolutely brilliant. He talks about high context communication and low context communication. So high context communication takes place between insiders in situations in which the communicator and the audience share much in common. In such situations, less accommodation is necessary for effective communication to take place. And therefore, much might be left unsaid that an outsider might need in order to fully understand the communication. I think we we can understand that. He gives a brilliant example of the traffic report in Chicago. I'll come to that in a minute. By contrast, low context communication, high levels of accommodation are necessary as an insider attempts communication with an outsider. So you have these two levels. So he talks about a traffic report. I'll, I'll put it here. If we're going to talk about a traffic report in Bristol, and I mentioned things like Cumberland Basin or the Portway, those of us who live in Bristol, but actually probably fairly locally to Hope Chapel, will know immediately what I'm talking about at rush hour. Not that we have that anymore. It's a bit different at the moment. But they'll know immediately those kind of roads and those layouts. If we live maybe further afield in the region, we'll be like, oh, I know about the suspension bridge. Clifton Suspension Bridge, is that like near that area? Is that the same area? And if we don't really know Bristol at all, we might go, Bristol, is that like a city in America? Because there are like two Bristols in the world. And that's what I'm talking about. Low context communication requires high levels of accommodation. I've never heard of Bristol, and so I hear a traffic report on the Cumberland Basin and Portway. I won't have a clue what the person's talking about. High context communication. I live here. I hear that traffic report. I'm like, oh, yeah, I get what they're talking about. Fine. In the Bible, so this is the critical bit for us, a human communicator is engaged in expressing an accommodating message to a high context, i.e. ancient Israelite audience, ancient Israelite prophets, writing to an ancient and for an ancient Israelite audience. So, for example, a prophet and his audience share a history, a culture, a language, and the experiences of just their contemporaneous lives. But when we read the Bible, we enter the context as low-context outsiders. We don't know. Have you ever read the Bible and thought, I have no idea what place they're talking about? No idea. Never heard of that place. We need to use all our inferential tools to discern the nature of the communication that's taking place in that ancient setting, as well as discern from that the revelation God has offered through that communication. We have to use research to fill all the information that would not have been said by the prophet in his high context communication to his audience. This is how we as modern readers, must interact with the ancient text. And that's brilliant. Now, research is for a few. It's not for everyone. But what we can do is glean their research, and it helps us enter into the right level of communication where we can actually hear the context and connect with what the biblical authors are trying to communicate. And so he describes, they describe this this cultural rhythms, which I just thought absolutely brilliant. There are two, we have to understand, every culture lives in a cultural river. So 
There's a Western cultural river, which most of us live in. Some of us will be connecting from other parts of the world. I think Asia has some different and more interesting aspects to their cultural river, for example. But essentially, there is a cultural river we live in, and and we are immersed in these values and ways of thinking, probably without even realising it. And the ancient Near East similarly had a cultural river that was immersive. It was what they lived in, what the ancient Israelite authors would live in, as well as their Babylonian and Mesopotamian neighbours to the to the north. And they say in, in this book, in our modern world, the cultural river is easily identified. Here we've got a list here. Among its currents of various fundamentals, such as rights, freedom, capitalism, democracy, individualism, globalism, market economy, scientific naturalism, an expanding universe, empiricism, and natural laws, to name just a few. Some may wish to float in these currents, while others may struggle to swim upstream against them, but everyone in our modern world inevitably is located in its waters. Regardless of our diverse ways of thinking, we are all in the cultural river, and its currents are familiar to us. In the ancient world, a very different cultural river flowed through all of the diverse cultures, Egyptian, Phoenician, Syrian, or Israelite. Despite various... Variations between the cultures and across the centuries, certain elements remained largely static. And this is really helpful as we approach the Hebrew Bible, and particularly Genesis 1 to 11. In the, in the ancient world, we would find currents such as community identity, the comprehensive and ubiquitous control of the gods, the role of kingship, divination, the centrality of the temple, the mediatory role of images, and the reality of the spirit world and magic. That was immersive. That was the cultural river of the ancient Near East. The Israelites sometimes floated on these currents without resistance, but at other times, however, one revelation of God encouraged them to struggle out of the current into the shallows or even to swim furiously upstream. I would actually say that the, I would kind of tip, top that with saying actually the spirit of God enables us to really flow in a different direction. We don't have to fight. We, if we enter into the spirit of God, he helps us forge a kingdom cultural river. But, but I, I understand what they're saying. Whatever the extent of the Israelites' interactions with the cultural river, it is important to remember that they were situated in the ancient cultural river, not immersed at all in the currents of our modern cultural river. Really, really helpful. I'm going to stick there and just hear something he talks about, about how the ancient Israelites related to Yahweh, Elohim, remember the, the revelation of one supreme God who takes his place in the whole cosmos is the temple, and then the gods in and of everything of the ancient Near East, particularly in, in the Mesopotamian region, polytheism, gods of everything. He calls it the great symbiosis. We learn that the gods created people because they were tired of their work involved to meet their own needs. It was actually a slave revolt of the lesser gods revolted against the greater gods. They didn't want to keep making work for them. So gods needed food, clothes, housing, and so on, but they didn't want to work for it. Once people were created to serve this way, it becomes necessary for the gods to provide for people and protect them. The result is codependence. There's a codependent relationship in the ancient world between humans and the gods. They don't really like people. They need people. Yahweh, in contrast, has no needs at all. He's completely full within his own, we come to realise through the biblical narrative, Trinitarian relationship, full of abundance and complete He actually just desires relationship. Living among people was his plan in the beginning. And that was why he created them. I actually think there's some resonance between the codependence of humans and the pantheon of gods, both both in the Babylonian Empire, but also in the Greco-Roman empires and our celebrity culture. We don't have that, that, that sort of polytheistic pantheon of gods, but we do have this sort of codependent relationship between the mass of humanity and celebrities who kind of need humans, mere mortals, to follow them and love them and tweet and so on. But I imagine, I don't know, probably get rather fed up with all that harassment and actually would prefer not to have so much connection. So that, that that sort of that codependence is still, I think, there in our celebrity culture, just looks differently. Anyway, so to recap, we looked at Genesis 1, the whole cosmos is a temple, a sacred space, God's space, heaven. He creates humans as his images to rule on his behalf on earth. Genesis 2, God's space, heaven and earth, and human space, earth are one in the temple, the sacred space of the Garden of Eden. 
And then Genesis 3, in order to rule as his images on God's behalf, humans need wisdom. Humans are exiled from the garden because they seek to rule in their own wisdom, thus forfeiting God's presence. And all the way through the Bible, you have these populated Eden, anti-Eden and exile narratives. And it all boils down to how we read the world. God sees something as tov and ra. Tov translated as good, evil. Ra translated as evil in God's eyes or is something tov and ra in human eyes? Whose eyes are we looking through? This makes the whole Hebrew Bible actually a reading of the world through God's eyes, reading what is tov and ra according to his wisdom, his understanding. And this is actually what true prophecy is. This is why the Hebrew Bible and the New Testament revelation of Jesus is a prophetic book, because it's teaching us to see the world through God's eyes rather than our own eyes. How do we discern true Edens from false Edens? We see whose eyes the author is described as looking through. When you see it's looking through God's eyes and it's Tov and Ra, you know you've got Tov, you've got Eden. If it's through human eyes, something is Tov and it is taken, you're triggering that Genesis 3 full narrative and you know it's going to lead to death and destruction. Edens in the biblical narrative, we've already had a prophetic word this morning, which which marks one, Psalm 1, the person by the, the tree in the streams of living water. That's an Eden narrative. The one who meditates on the Bible day and night is like a stream, a tree planted by streams of living water whose fruits never fail. That is an Eden narrative right there. It's an Eden echo. You see them all the way through. Edens are marked by if you see fruit trees or rivers or springs or gold and precious jewels which were hidden in the earth, but in, in later on in the priesthood, they're given it on their, their breastpiece and mountains. All of those Eden imagery. And some of our favourite verses here at Isaiah 58 says that when we pour out on behalf of the poor and the needy, Isaiah 58, one of our favourite passages, we will be like well-watered gardens. We will be like springs whose waters never fail. Isaiah 58, that is an Eden narrative, an Eden echo. We come right to the end of a new Eden. These stunning images, if you read from 21 verse 1 right through to 22 verse 5, you, you, you see the complete recovery and restoration to a whole new level because the divine human partnership is in place from Genesis 1 and 2 ideal. It's complete in Revelation 21 and 22. There's no need for sun because God is the temple and he is the light and we reign with him forever and ever. Absolutely stunning. Super abundance for all. In the West, I, I picked up, I found that phrase really helpful. Mark Sayers comments on the superabundance in the West. Now, that is not, that is an anti-Eden. An Eden is a superabundance for all where everyone gets to flourish under their own vine and fig tree. We see that Adam and Eve's fall and exile foreshadow the nation of Israel. The golden calf is their tragic fall narrative. They wander in the wilderness for 40 years, continually failing, though, when they eventually enter the promised land to rebuild Eden. And they're finally exiled to Babylon. Now, you might remember those images of the hanging gardens of Babylon. Babylon is an anti-Eden in the biblical narrative because its wealth and grandeur and beauty is built through violence, oppression and injustice. So you have this plot conflict set up right in Genesis 1 and 3. And then Genesis 4 to 11, we see what happens. What is life like? What are the, the What is the fruit of the knowledge of eating of good and evil? Sorry. What is the fruit, the knowledge of the fruit of eating of good and evil? <laughs> In, in Genesis 4 to 11, what does that death look like? So Tim Mackey, I love how he sums this up. The story of the Bible is the reunion of heaven and earth. We, there was a schism. We came to that last week. And then the whole story now is a reunion. So we're going to look at life east of Eden. We're going to look at what death looks like. But we're going to see all the way through the biblical authors keep to this vision that there is a promise given in Genesis 3. There's a seed of the woman who will crush the seed of the snake.
So Genesis 4 to 11 essentially has two genealogies which trace the seed of the woman, the line of Adam to Noah, then Noah to Abraham. And it's punctuated by narratives of individual and societal life east of Eden, life in exile from God's presence, the consequences of humans ruling in their own wisdom. And you see that humans are accountable for all these consequences before God. Before we go there, I'm going to say two potential stumbling blocks. So the years in the genealogies are in the hundreds. And the language around the flood is universal. It's funny how we instinctively come to Genesis 4 to 11. We don't really mind about the Cain and Abel narrative. We don't really mind about the Tower of Babylon narrative. But we do mind about genealogies being extraordinarily long in their lives, in their years. And we do mind about universal language around the flood. It's really interesting. That shows the cultural river we're immersed in. So I'm just going to give you a few bits here, but we're going to really pay attention. Don't forget, we're going to try and leave these agendas behind, what we stumble over. Leave them behind and try and enter into the biblical worldview and hear the communication through these because they're really, really important. But firstly, just to comment on biblical genealogies generally to help you read them. They are carefully organised by the authors in order to communicate a meaning. So if I got out my family tree, it would be precise. It would be me, my birth, my death date, hopefully a long time away from now, my siblings, my spouse, children, parents, you, it would literally be exact. Otherwise, it wouldn't be seen as a family tree. That is not how the biblical authors view genealogies. They organized material very specifically to deliver a communication. So Jesus, famously, there are two genealogies, one in Matthew and one in Luke. The Matthew genealogy is 14 generations, three lots of them, which you by now should know seven is a complete number. So three lots of double seven genealogies between Abraham and David, David in the exile, exile of Mary and Joseph. Matthew is speaking to a Jewish readership and he is saying Jesus is the Jewish Messiah. So his genealogy is organized around that intent. Luke is saying Jesus is for everyone, the outcast, the sinner, the poor uh, women, Gentiles. His genealogy goes back to Adam, son of Adam. Remember, that's the Hebrew for humanity, son of God. So he's identifying something different about the person and the work of Jesus. And that's how genealogies work. So we can relax, put away our tear up our family tree notion and look at the genealogy as a way of communicating meaning, particularly identity. Now, just to say as well, in the ancient world, people really did love very long lifespans. So there are three kings in a Sumerian genealogy, which also lists 10 names, who were given 75,000 years of life. So it's complex. It's difficult for us to understand. But what I don't think is helpful is to say, maybe there was a really seismic cosmic flood. And these are some of the things that I've read. And Therefore, maybe there was more oxygen in the air, so maybe people could have lived longer. Or everyone was vegetarian then, so they could have lived longer. I get that. I sympathise with thinking like that. But thinking like that won't help us to hear what the biblical authors are trying to communicate. We need to lay that aside and trust that we that they have a message to say through the extraordinarily long numbers. And we'll come to them in a minute. But just to say, to throw this in the mix, Hebrew letters are their numbering system. So when you read a Hebrew letter, you read a number. There's a whole industry around this, which we don't have any time to go into. And I don't have any knowledge at all. A little research is a dangerous thing, so I'm not even going to go there. But that also means that any numbers you get are maybe doing something else as well as just saying numbers. The way for us in a hyper-materialistic, realist kind of um, an analysis of the material realm, numbers mean numbers. That's what they mean. Whereas they they do different things in the ancient world and particularly in ancient Hebrew. And finally, we do see the years slowly reduce to a more normal, actually current contextual number of years. So it could be things like their accounting system is different to ours. People talk about their lunar and solar calendar and so on. I, I, I honour that. And I think there's a place for that. But what we're learning to do is not worry about that, is we're learning to get immersed in the ancient Near East, what they understood a genealogy to be, what they understood lifespans to be, what they understood they were communicating and trying to hear to that. The second is the language around the flood is universal. There is no evidence for a universal 
flood. There, there just isn't a geological record of that. I think some people are trying to find that or trying to bring that, but at the moment there is no evidence. I personally find it extremely helpful to remember in the ancient Near East, the world was flat, it wasn't a globe. They didn't see a globe when they were thinking of floods. They were seeing a dome which split open, and it says that, it uses the word rakir, the dome, which holds the waters above from crashing in on everything. Splits, waters come down. It's highly unlikely they, would have, they wouldn't have been thinking sphere. But when they used universal language, it was highly likely, it was an extremely traumatic, probably vast, but localised flood, but universal language was employed as hyperbole as a rhetorical device to communicate a message. We see this a lot through the Hebrew Bible. Jesus himself uses hyperbole to communicate a message when he's dealing with sin in the New Testament. He says, if, if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. He's not literally saying cut it off. He's using the exaggeration of that, that, that moment to say sin is so dangerous, so contaminating, so toxic that you do whatever it takes to get it out of your life. And of course, the message of grace is Jesus took it all in his body and in that way cut it off. But he uses hyperbole as a rhetorical device to communicate a message. It's highly likely there was, a, there was an extremely traumatic, vast, probably a number of floods in the ancient world where there were very few survivors. We've got so many flood stories. We'll come to one in a minute. That, that that probably happened. And then what we're doing is paying attention to the interpretation of the biblical authors. What are they saying about that history, that event in their oral history and tradition? Because it's in the it's in the representation in the biblical text that is the inspirational authority. We've said this again and again, but this to me was the breakthrough. John Salehammer in the Pentateuch as narrative absolutely he disentangles history the actual events and the authority of how the biblical authors represent those events so i'm going to read it a, a bit a different bit again but i've i've quoted from him before he was that he he gave the brilliant example of the tree and then the photograph of the tree how does the study of historical background material affect our understanding of the text or scripture do we look for meaning or sense in the scripture itself or is the text primarily a witness to the act of God's self-revelation in the history, the events recorded by the scripture? So is the, is the revelation, the authority, the inspiration in the history, or is it in the way the writers write about the history? In 2 Timothy 3.16, Paul writes, all scripture is inspired by God. We are accustomed to directing our attention towards the second part of Paul's statement, that scripture is inspired. That's our emphasis. However, it's equally appropriate to begin focusing on the first half of the first part of Paul's, Paul's statement that all scripture is inspired. In calling scripture inspired, Paul gives the written text the highest claim of authority, not the historical events. It's how they were write, written about and interpreted and represented through the biblical authors. It is specifically scripture that Paul points to as the locus of God's revelation. So in the case of the flood narrative, there were highly traumatic, probably vast but localised floods. We will see the biblical interpretation is in the Noah narrative, Genesis 6 to 9. And that is the divine interpretation that claims that authority. It's how they interpret that flood narrative. And then we will also look at another ancient Near Eastern flood narrative that has marked similarities and see how they interpret it, because it's in the interpretation that is the inspiration that makes it a prophetic book. So we're going to go through these four sections, Cain and Abel narrative, the two framing genealogies, Noah and the flood and the Tower of Babel. And we'll look at each one of them and just look at one literary device the author uses because the author is, is a writer, is a communicator through narrative and sometimes poetry and sometimes instruction. And the way they put their words is the way God's inspired message is going to come through to the ancient Israelite community. And then if we pay close attention and bridge that gap to us too, we can always ask the Holy Spirit to help interpret for us. That's really helpful. He is right there with us as a counsellor and he can help get us present to this text. This is a light yoke, but, it, but we're also required to be intelligent in our approach to these ancient texts. 
So the Cain and Abel narrative very simply will just look at the questions God asks. What I'm going to ask you to do is read these separately. We don't have enough time now to read out these texts. Read Genesis 1 as you listen to the talk. Read Genesis 2 and 3 as you listen to the talk. Read Genesis 4 to 11 as you listen to the talk. Cain and Abel narrative comes bang right on that exile from Eden. The two sons of Adam and Eve, tragically, Abel offers the first fruits. Cain offers fruit of the soil. And God looks with favour on Abel's, but not on Cain's. Cain has a wrestle where God speaks to him, encourages him to deal with it, says if you don't, this spirit animal creature called sin will come and take dominion over you. And Cain doesn't take Yahweh's encouragement and tragically he kills Abel out of jealousy. And and there's more to the narrative, which we don't have time to go into, that show actually God's mercy as well as his justice. But the particular things we're going to look at that show that this is a second fall narrative. There are many fall narratives. This is another one. How we know is because the biblical author puts in very similar questions that God, Yahweh, brings to Adam and Eve. He also brings to Cain. So after the event where Cain kills Abel, he comes Sorry, after Adam and Eve have eaten the fruit of the knowledge of the tree of good and evil, God comes to Adam and says, where are you? He then comes to Cain and says, where is your brother Abel? When you hear that echo, you know, ah, he's telling me something. Do you remember that cubist picture of Guernica we looked at last week, Pablo Picasso's Guernica? Two different um, sort of images of the face, the front and the side together. We're hearing another full narrative, another take on what is happening when someone transgresses because of that literary illusion, because of that repeated question, where is your brother? He says to Eve, what is this you have done? And he says to Cain, what have you done? Every time from now on in the whole Hebrew Bible, you hear Yahweh Elohim say to someone, where are you and what have you done? We're thinking Genesis 3 and 4, full narratives. That's what the author is teaching you. To, to hear as you hear those questions. So this is a full narrative and it's essentially helping to explain what happened in Genesis 3, that something happens, this spirit-like, animal-like creature called sin, like a, almost like a demon, it's waiting to crouch and have dominion over humans. If we give way to it, we lose our authority to reign with God and we come under the authority of this sin nature, this human condition. And that's how the biblical authors express that, by two narratives which have echoes, particularly around the questions God asks. And one thing we need to note, and this is a theme all the way through the scripture, we even hear it in Revelation, innocent blood cries out from the ground. Innocent blood doesn't just go into the ground and no one hears it. God hears the cries of innocent blood. That is absolutely key to understanding what then happens in the flood narrative. No one gets away with murder. We also see seven generations. Adam via Cain's line is a man called Lamech. And he, if you like, is the fullness of the fruit of death. He's a violent man. He boasts of killing a young man in vengeance. And for the first time in the biblical account, takes two wives. Polygamy enters the human condition. So there's something about the seed or the line of Cain. Although God tempers it with mercy, he brings protection against the uh, protection and covering. There's something about them showing what life is like east of Eden if we choose to live in our own wisdom, redefining Tob and Ra in our own understanding. Then we next come to those two framing genealogies, Adam to Noah and Shem to Abraham. And we see, firstly, they're both 10, numbers of 10 in the genealogies. We also see that in every single one, they live hundreds of years, but there's this repeated phrase. Do you remember how we looked at the repeated phrase Tove in the Genesis 1 narrative, where it is and where it isn't? It wasn't in day two because they split the waters. God split the waters and that's progress, but it's not sufficient for human flourishing on the dry land. It was only in Genesis in day three where the dry land was there and food was there that two things were Tove in day three. Good. So where there is something, a repeated pattern, And then we also observe where it's taken away. And you can see in these 10 generations from Adam to Noah, there are 10 generations. He died and then he died and then he died and then he died. And then you get to number seven and you get to Enoch. 
He doesn't die. He lives 365 days, years, and then walks with God and is seen no more. And you have a hint of someone who was recovering Eden, someone who was walking with God, and death has no hold over him. There's a subtle but profound message through the repetition, and then he died, and then no death with Enoch, and then we come through to Noah's father, Lamech, 777. Wholeness and completion gives birth to Noah, who will provide comfort in an age of violence and corruption. And then similarly, we have another 10 generations in the next in the next narr- in the next genealogy that frames it comes right at the end of this this primeval narrative Noah to Abraham to Shem sorry Shem Noah's son to Abraham is 10 generations no mention of death so they're the same but there's no mention of death there's just a slow reduction of the years and then we get to Abraham who God picks out we'll see out of the post babel nations and show that mercy always triumphs over justice. Ten is a number of wholeness or completion, like seven. We learned about that in Genesis 1. There are ten creative works that God speaks the universe into being in Genesis 1. There are ten plagues where God confronts the ten gods of Egypt through Moses in Exodus, and he gives ten words or commandments famously to Moses on the mountain. There are 10 lots of seven table of nations, 70 table of nations at the end of, at the end of this primeval narrative. And there are 10 lots of seven sons of Jacob. The, the, the nation of Israel begins with the number 70 moving at the end of Genesis from Canaan down to Egypt. In the, in the whole of Genesis, there are 10 toledots, which is the Hebrew word for accounts, five in the primeval section and five in the, what's become known as the patriarchal section of the book of Genesis. 10 is an important number. So when they're saying there are 10 in the genealogies, essentially it's a message of messianic hope. The seed of the woman is going strong, despite what you're reading as well in these narratives, both the Cain and Abel narrative and what we're going to come across in the flood and the Babylon narratives. There is still the seed of woman. There's the seed of hope. The east of Eden, you can still live faithfully before God like Enoch. And God will still work out his redemptive, restorative promises. That's what I believe the biblical authors are trying to say by paying attention to their literary devices, their repetitions, and when they take repetition away. And when they use numbers symbolically and so on. So thirdly, we're going to look at Noah and the flood. We'll look at the phrases which particularly echo the Genesis 1 narrative. But because this is so big and so challenging for people, we're actually just going to hear... A another flood story. Thought you thought what you'd really enjoy as a bit of really niche ancient Near Eastern flood mythology from the Babylonian Empire. That's just probably what you've been waiting for all your life. So now is the moment to have it. This is my synopsis taken from Temper Longman and John Walton's The Lost World of the Flood and their understanding of it. And it's called the Gilgamesh Epic. So I'm going to say the whole thing because I want you to feel the immersive river of the Babylonian Empire. I want you then the Mesopotamian region under which, during which the rise and fall of the Hebrew Bible was written. I want you to feel this and hear this. In the middle, you'll see where the flood story comes in. So basically, people pray to the gods to help them because they have this young, impetuous king. The gods create en, uh, this, this man, wild man from the, who runs with the wild animals from the countryside, Enkido, to go and deal with this impetuous king. He is seduced by a prostitute in order to civilise him so he can enter the city. And he's furious with Gilgamesh, this young impetuous king, because Gilgamesh sleeps with all the brides of the city on the night of their wedding. It's called the rite of the first night. They wrestle, Gilgamesh wins, but Enkidu and Gilgamesh, they come friends and they go on adventures together. Ishtar, the goddess of love and war, sees Gilgamesh, I think naked, washing in his own blood, but certainly naked, and proposes a relationship with him. He insults her, so she goes to her father, Anu, the god of heaven, and asks for vengeance. And at the same time, Anu kills Enkidu, this wild man from the steppe who wrestles but then becomes friends with Gilgamesh. As Enkidu, his friend, is dying in his arms, Gilgamesh realises that one day he too will die and seeks out a flood hero. There's a flood hero, Utah Napishti, the only human who has eternal life. Utah Napishti tells him, the flood story of how he attained his immortality. So the story goes of this flood myth, and this is also repeated 
in a couple of other ancient Near Eastern flood texts. Enlil, a, a strong, a big god, and the gods, they want to destroy humanity completely because of their noise and overpopulation. They're fed up with them, they're noisy, and they're multiplying everywhere. They can't bear humanity, so they want to destroy them. However, there's one god, Ar, who, who actually has a favourite, Utah Napishti, and he wants to protect him. He wants to save humanity. So Ar tells him, in a roundabout way, to build a large ark and save the seed of all living things, animals. And he does so, he takes in gold, silver, his family, the animals, and the builders. The flood that comes is so terrible and so catastrophic, even the gods scream and cower at the might of this storm. Finally, after the flood recedes, the ark rests on Mount Nimush, and after seven days, Utanapishti releases a dove, which returns, a swallow, which returns, and then finally a raven, which doesn't return. Utanapishti offers the gods a sacrifice for being spared, but Enlil, of course, discovers that that humans have been spared, and he is angry with R for letting for letting um, for protecting one person and sparing humanity from complete destruction. But R tells him in response they have a fight, a, an argument, and R tells him to manage overpopulation with less extreme measures, for example, predatory animals, pestilence, or famine. Yutanapishti becomes immortal because Enlil comes into their ship and blesses them to be gods. So this is the story, Yutanapishti, the flood hero. There are a number of flood hero stories. And he tells Gilgamesh this story. This is how I've attained immortality. So Gilgamesh, this young and impetuous king who's having an enlightened journey, realizes that eternal life was given in in an exceptional circumstance. That is why this one hero has conquered death and has become uh, immortal forever because the gods in an exceptional circumstance granted him immortality and that is not going to be accessible to him. He recognises that. He returns to this city matured and chastened, recognising that his afterlife in his legacy lies, lies his sorry, his afterlife lies in his legacy as king. And so the original prayers to the gods to deal with this young and impetuous king are answered. And that is a really helpful insight into the way of thinking in the ancient Near East and how people thought. A really interesting insight into the flood, one of the flood narratives of which there are a number of them. So... What's helpful then is to compare the interpretation. There's obviously some sort of cataclysmic, traumatic flood story where there are very few, one, maybe a handful of survivors from some sort of boat with, with animals and so on. There's some sort of, there's something that happened in history, but it's the interpretation of what's going on that is in the authority, in the inspiration. So firstly, we see if we're comparing and contrasting creation and other ancient Near Eastern flood stories, if we we just go back to that other image. Um, We see humans from God's point of view, Genesis 1, humans are created to reign as God's image bearers, invited into intimacy, to rest and reign and rule with him in a seventh day that has no end. Whereas in the ancient Near Eastern creation narratives, humans are created as slaves to relieve the lesser gods of having to work to feed the greater gods. In the Genesis narrative, humans then choose to rule in their own wisdom, and as a consequence, violence fills the earth. The blood of the innocent cries out for justice. Yahweh is brokenhearted. It literally says he repents he's made humanity. So both of them have a strong element of human disorder. The disorder and chaos is broken out on the earth, but both of them interpret the other texts and Genesis interpret what happens in different ways. Yahweh literally repents. He has a change of mindset. He's made humanity. He's so brokenhearted at the violence and corruption, the Ra, that is not, not people have multiplied across the world. Ra, evil, has multiplied across the world such that violence and corruption marks everything that everyone is doing. And he seeks to bring justice to the innocent blood that's crying out to him from the ground because that blood demands an accounting. Humans are accountable. They don't kill and get away with it. Their blood cries out from the ground. 
So he seeks to bring justice and cleanse the world from evil through sending a catastrophic flood. Whereas in the other ancient Near Eastern narratives, humans are noisy, they're overpopulating, and the gods are fed up with them. They just want to destroy humanity through sending a catastrophic flood. However, Yahweh Elohim is committed to humanity. There was a covenantal invitation to walk with him in Eden, and he doesn't give up on this project of walking with humanity, of raising them up as his image bearers. So he wants to preserve humanity. So he actually sees that amongst the violence and corruption, there's one man, Noah, who actually is not violent or corrupt. He actually does live before God, like Enoch did, faithfully walking with him, seeking to recover Eden, east of Eden, even in exile. So he commands him to build an ark to save himself, his wife, their three sons and three wives and their animals. Meanwhile, there's an argument amongst the gods. One god actually doesn't want to eradicate humanity. He wants to save it. So the substitute tells this human to get his family and the animals and gold and silver and be protected from the storm. Finally, after the flood in the Genesis narrative, Noah makes a sacrifice to Yahweh Elohim. And Yahweh Elohim makes a covenant with Noah and every living thing that he will never destroy the earth again with the flood that he is committed to this partnership of intimacy with humanity, of humanity being his image bearers, human, human flourishing on the dry land that he established in Genesis 1. Whereas in the other ancient Near Eastern narrative, there is an argument amongst the gods because this saved human sacrifices to the gods, thanking them, therefore exposing that humans haven't been destroyed, and then R gives some overpopulation management advice to Enlil, one of the, the leading gods. So you see this fundamentally different interpretation, particularly of the value of humanity. That to me is is striking. It's rich. It's epic. I understand that story in the Babylonian, in their myth, in their culture. But there's something about brutality and insignificance of human life, which is totally contrasted in the Genesis 1 to 11 narrative. Human life matters. Humans are significant. We are free to bear God's image or rule in our own wisdom. But when we kill someone else, that blood cries out from the ground and that blood demands an accounting. So what we see is that if we look now within the text of Genesis, we've kind of felt the immersive world of the ancient Near East through hearing that, that Gilgamesh epic. But now if we look within the text, we see that the authors are taking Genesis 1 Decreation and recreation echoes in order to tell the story of the flood. Just divine justice in the Bible always looks like accelerating the decreation process. And it's always decreation in order to bring recreation mercy. With this phrase, he hands us over. He hands us over to the consequences of our own choice. But just as you see an animal in torment, and the kindest thing is, is to end its life immediately. So that's what the flood is. It's an acceleration of the process of decreation that humans are already embarked on wholeheartedly in resistance towards God. So we see day three is reversed. The waters above and the waters below the rakir that is broken open and they come together. Sorry, the waters cover the dike, the springs come up and the dry land is reversed. Day three is reversed, the waters cover the dry land. Day two is reversed, the, the rakir above and the rakir, the waters below are released until they return to that watery abyss of the pre-creation state of Genesis 1-2. This is why universal language is so useful because he's making a point, the biblical author, about the universality of the human condition. There's a complete decreation back to the pre-creation's watery abyss when humans seek to rule in their own wisdom. There are also many distinct time periods during this, lots of periods of seven days, as we know, days of completeness, also a 40-day flood, although there's a long time afterwards, it takes a whole year for the flood to recede, but it's a 40-day traumatic flood, and that 40 speaks of exile, both the Israelites, 40 years, but also the redemptive exile of 40 days, Jesus in the wilderness. And then there's recreation. In Genesis, if you read Genesis 8 and 9, it echoes Genesis 1. This Ruach, the Spirit of God, hovers over the waters, and God sends a Ruach, the Spirit, the breath of God, over the earth, and it recedes. Day two, the waters are separated again. Again, 
in the Genesis 8-9 narrative. Day three, where dry land appears, again, that appears in Genesis 8 and 9. Day five, birds are released into the sky. Day six, animals are released onto the land. Day six, humans are blessed again to be fruitful and multiply. That benediction occurs again in Genesis 8 and 9. Humans are called again to bear God's image and rule the world. And day six, humans are given food, just like they were in the original day six, but this time with animal meat. There is a sacrifice which pleases God, reminiscent of Abel's sacrifice. And God responds with a poem promising to meet humanity's needs, reversing the order of the delivery in Genesis 1, where we're given time, then weather, then food. He gives food, then weather, then time, but all needed for human flourishing on the dry land. So here we have a new Eden. We have a man at peace with the animals. Anything about people at peace with the animals is an Eden narrative. A man at peace with animals on a mountain, given a blessing, he plants a vineyard. It's a, it's a new creation. It's a new day for humanity. The restoration process has begun. And then we see Noah's full narrative, as I hope you know we're going to see, because you're beginning to, we're all beginning to learn how to read the Bible. There's one prohibition in this new Eden poem. Tragically, remember that pristine, pure ideal of Genesis 1. In the image of God, he creates humanity, male and female, he creates us. Here we have whoever sheds human blood in this poem. By humans shall their blood be shed. For in the image of God, God has made humanity. He's already self-limiting in order to partner with us. He's already doing things that he'd never wanted or even considered doing because he's committed to partnership with us. And he's put a stake in the ground. No more violence on the land. There is an accounting for every innocent blood that cries out before me. And so we have this man of the soil. Cain was a man of the soil who plants a vineyard. He gets drunk and is exposed and naked. That is a full narrative right there. Tragically, Noah doesn't fulfill the vision of this seed of the woman who's going to crush the serpent snake because he is righteous, he's blameless, he's incredible, but actually he is fallen. And we know that because of the literary devices of the authors. And finally, we come to the Tower of Babylon. And there's a perfect literary structure here, which I'm incredibly grateful for. It is literally an hourglass if you read it. There's a narrative at the beginning. Now the whole world had one language and one speech and people moved eastward. They found the plain in Shiva and settled there. Then there's a dialogue between the people. They said to each other, they said, come let us. And you can read this all in full. You can see it goes narrative dialogue. Then there's a central passage, the key passage that the biblical authors are leading us to through this hourglass literary structure. But the laws came down to see the city and the tower the people were building. Then it goes out to the dialogue. The Lord said, come let us. So humans say, come let us. This time the Lord says, come let us. And then narrative. So the Lord scattered them from where they were over the city. The Lord scattered them. We know from the central passage, we're beginning to understand how to read the Bible. That if in Yahweh's eyes, what he sees, and then he scatters, he's saying Babel is an anti-Eden. It's humans seeking to make a name for themselves in their own righteousness, their own effort, their own ways. They're seeking to redefine for themselves Tobin Ra. But we're learning how to read it because we're understanding that the biblical authors use literary devices in order to communicate their point. The Lord saw the city and what he sees matters. He determines what's Tobin Ra. And in this case, this was Ra. It was going to continue to escalate into death and destruction again, despite the justice that had been intervened in Noah. And so we end on that genealogy, but there's a message of hope because we have a man called Abraham who's called out of, just like Noah was called out of, Adam and Eve were called to be a priesthood in the garden. Noah was called out of his chaotic, disordered context. So we have another man, Abraham, who's called out of the post-Babel nations to rebuild Eden in a promised land. So what we're seeing we've been trained is how to read the Bible, is, is to how to read the world is through seeing how Yahweh sees. That's essentially, there are two ways of seeing. And we see all the way through the Genesis 4 to 11 narrative, reference after reference after reference to how the Lord sees. It says the Lord looked with favour on Abel's offering. He saw how great the raw, the evil of the human race had become on the land during the Noah narrative. 
The earth was corrupt in God's sight and full of violence. God saw how corrupt it had become for all the people on the earth had corrupted their ways. The Lord came down to see the city. So if we see the world through God's eyes, if we seek to redefine good and evil in his way and his understanding, what does it look like? What are some of the ways the biblical authors all the way through the Bible express the Genesis ideal? In other words, going to, to, to Paul's wisdom on why the Hebrew Bible and the New Testament have been written, it's the wisdom literature. How can we apply this to us? And there are some beautiful, beautiful phrases through the Bible that show us how to live seeing the world through God's eyes, how to define Tov and Ra according to God's understanding. The invitation is to walk with God, live by faith, walk in step with the spirit, be full of the power of God's spirit, to live by God's wisdom, to love by God's love. That You can see these phrases through the Bible populating it and in the New Testament. This is saying how we recover Eden. We walk with God. We live by faith. We walk in step with the spirit. We're full of the power of the spirit. We live by God's wisdom. We love by God's love. And the promise is if we do that, then life, human flourishing and abundance will be the hallmark of our life. And the warning is if we resist that generous invitation and we harden our hearts, we choose to define for ourselves what is good and evil. We will cause suffering, destruction and death wherever we go. rather poignant at the end of Yuval Noah, well, near the end of his third book, Yuval Noah, Noah Harari's book, 21 Lessons for the 21st Century. He comes up with six values of the secular ideal. He famously writes Sapiens, his first of this, this trilogy of what it is to be human. And he is a historian, so he interprets the current scientific consensus a number of things he interprets, but one of them current scientific consensus on the material origins of humanity in a thoroughly hyper-materialistic, atheist manner. And I have a great deal of sympathy towards many of his lines of arguments. He kicks a lot of sacred cows into touch. It's compelling reading. But he essentially comes to the end of his, his vision for how to live now in the 21st century in his third book with six values which are resonant with us. They're resonant with the Western cultural river. Truth, compassion, equality, freedom, courage, and responsibility. But honestly, when I look at that, I just think it's naive. I I just don't know if we can embody and inhabit those values. I think we need someone who doesn't just embody those values, but blows them out of the water. We need someone who is so full of truth and reality that everyone around them comes into truth and reality. We need someone who's so full of compassion that they are mobilised to raise someone from the dead and feed thousands. We see someone who so recovers the vision of Genesis 1 that we're all called to rest and rule with God on the seventh day, that he speaks to the last, the least, and the lost, and he raises the needy from the dust heap, he raises them and makes them kings and queens, even though they're an oppressed minority under a dominant empire. We need someone who has so much courage that they're willing to go through the most humiliating execution ever because he sees a vision of restored, resurrected humanity out on the other side of death. Someone who was so full of responsibility that he took on himself the entire evil, death, tragedy, fallenness of the human condition and in his death on the cross completely and fully conquers it. Ironically, we need Jesus to fulfill the ideal of living the good life in the 21st century. He alone has done that, but in him, he enables us all to do that. We do need God. Yuval Noah Harari would say we can do this in our own effort. We can, we can get there. We can attain incrementally to this secular ideal. I would say, I think that's naive. We need someone who will do that for us. He has done that for us 2,000 years ago. And in him, we can live out the ideal of human flourishing on the, on the dry land and also way more superabundance, even that any of us can imagine. So we think we're reading the Bible and we very soon realise that it's actually reading us. It's a mirror. It's a prophetic book which tells us that we're actually spiritually blind. What we think is Tov and Ra, good and evil, is in fact not. It's like we're born 
physically blind, trying to make sense of a room when we can't see. And we need to see things as God sees them, which is actually how they really are. When we see through God's eyes, we see through the Holy Spirit, we read the Hebrew Bible and the New Testament according to God's wisdom and his spirit's counsel. We see the world the way it really is. We particularly see the need of the human condition. This is the most offensive and liberating truth we will ever come to. We need help, but help has come. The Hebrew Bible holds up person after person after person who fails to live by God's wisdom through echoes of these creation and Eden narratives. The Hebrew Bible exposes the human need, but also promises that a seed of a woman will come and crush the seed of the snake. There will be a human who will meet that deep need. The New Testament is a prophetic witness to Jesus who meets our need in every way. He is the second Adam. He is the new Noah. He is the faithful Israelite who succeeds fully in living by God's wisdom in every way. We need the Father. We need the Son. We need the Spirit. We need to come into that Trinitarian family in order to live human flourishing on the dry land and prophetically anticipate the full new creation that is to come. Abel's blood points to Jesus, a blood that speaks a better word. The two genealogies point to the ancestry of Jesus who came in human form. And Noah's Ark points to Jesus's wide invitation to restoration. And finally, Babel. It's fully and completely reversed at Pentecost. The Holy Spirit came down 2,000 years ago, poured out on so many nations, all gathered together in Jerusalem to worship Yahweh, and then all going back to worship God and talk about him in their own languages, in their own homes, spreading the blessing to the nations. The tragedy of Genesis 4 to 11 has been completely and fully restored in the death and resurrection of Jesus and in the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. And we get to inhabit that ideal now, prophetically anticipating the new creation that is to come. Thanks, Alice. Thanks so much. Again, so rich, isn't it? And uh, hope that was encouraging to you. <clears throat> and uh, <clears throat> I wonder what different uh, people's responses were. Some of that might have might have been, I think, probably quite a lot of wows. And you know, uh, I certainly find this um, uh, inspiring and and and, 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 and encouraging and, and, and uplifting. At the same time, it's a lot to take in. And um, so I encourage you, if, you found, if you're in that place where you found it's a lot to take in, don't be discouraged by that. Uh, the wonderful thing about God is that we can both, um, it's, is that study and getting into the guts and the depth of this will bring so much life. And this is the design of church. The, the church is designed with people with different gifts that, that contribute to the flourishing of the body. Alice's particular gift, along with several others in hope and many others in hope, is, is a gift of teaching. And she does a lot of this deep research for us and then brings us these things. That's not at all to say that we can't, in our own times, with the Lord, each morning or whatever your practice is, of sitting in a chair or having some time with God, reading the Bible, and you haven't got to know the Hebrew. You haven't got to know the, the depths of, of all of these intricacies of the, the Hebrew worldview or the Babylonian stuff. You know, You don't need to know any of that. The extraordinary thing about our God is that we can is that we can sit down from a place of almost knowing nothing and we can feed on his word and he speaks to us by his Holy Spirit. So I just want to encourage you, if you thought, whoa, this has opened my eyes to the complexity and um, intensity of the Bible, where do I go with that? Don't be discouraged. Drink from the fire hydrant as it's blasting, blasting us and it's good water. At the same time, uh, as well as studying and, and getting into this stuff, we can also, the simplicity of just... Just that, you know, Wizard of One said that Psalm 1 at the beginning, I forget who it was. And um, there's just so much life in that in that psalm and just reading Psalm 1, recognising that a tree planted by uh, water. Yes, Alice has given us the extra depth of the Eden connection. But even without that, we can we can feed on that. So be encouraged. Um, it's just so great to, to, to be tracking with you. Maybe some of you are new to Hope, in which case you're so welcome. We'd love to hear from you digitally or, or, or in person, love to, love to meet you. Uh, and as you can see, we're a community of people um, who've um, 
who have put our hope in Jesus. Uh, the, the fact that he lived and died 2,000 years ago changes everything for us. And it gives us a purpose and a life now. And so we're a community that, you know, in humility and authenticity, seek to follow Jesus and, and see the life that, that brings uh, everywhere. So that's what we're about. And um, Lord, I pray, thank you so much for what Alice has brought. And I pray you continue to feed us through it, build us up, encourage us. Thank you. And uh, next week, uh, for the last in this kind of mini-series on Genesis, um, Alice is going to be taking some questions and giving some responses to those. So please uh, send those over. You can do it through the, you can put a comment in the in the live stream here now, or you could email the office, or you could um, contact Alice if you've got her phone number. There's various ways you can you can track us down and uh, and get a, get a question over. Um, we'd really love that. Brilliant. So we'll finish our, our live stream here. Uh, as you know, uh, if you're here from the beginning, we've got um, uh, outdoor church happening this afternoon around coffee tables. I'll just repeat again what the thing is, just in case uh, anyone would like to hear. If not, you might want to log off at this point. Uh, this is nothing new, but I'm going to say say again what we're doing this afternoon. So um, we have uh, a couple of children's groups happening, so just sort of uh, activities uh, on the green at Potwas Primary School. So there'll be two age groups for younger and a slightly older one there. Um, please sign up for that so we know who's coming and we can work out we've got enough teams and so on. I actually need one more person to join me uh, on the older kids this afternoon. So if there's anyone who's who's on been uh, on one of our teams historically, then it'd be great to have you with me. Um, and then we'll have adults uh, serving coffee. We'll have coffee and tea served for adults around coffee tables outside Hope Chapel. And that the the vision of that is that we are it's so vital is that church gathers and, and this is an opportunity to gather in person. And we can encourage each other. Last week was quite a social one, which was brilliant. We're going to add to that a little bit more depth this Sunday, um, where we seek to, to grow in God together, grow as Christians together, to worship together. So we're going to be steered through that a little bit. And then um, and then there's no youth fire pits as there would normally be um, in the afternoon. Uh, by the way, we're doing it at three o'clock this week. We normally be doing this at four o'clock, but it's three o'clock this week because of this youth service that's happening in the afternoon. I think it's at... Um, Five o'clock, thanks, Hannah. So five o'clock here. So we all need to be cleared out by 4.30 so that there's space for Christchurch and Hope uh, Youth and uh, to come. And, and, and there's going to be 30 of them in the building here. Uh, and then it's going to be live streamed for other youth as well. So that's the plan for the rest of the day. And um, bless you in your week. Um, isn't it a privilege to, to follow Jesus? And, you know, as Paul Golf has said many times, it is such good news. It's, it's, this is good news. It brings us such life. And it's great to be able to get together like this and encourage each other.